And so we are kind of on the front lines of that interface between higher population, human populations and, and salmonid populations. And additionally, we're kind of on that front line for climate change. Welcome to the Field Notes podcast, where we talk about all things related to Esri Field apps. You just heard from Andrew Barchire, the GIS coordinator for California Sea Grant. He and Andrea Petrovich, an environmental specialist for Sonoma Water, work on the Russian River Salmon and Steelhead Monitoring Program. In this episode, we talk to them about how they use field maps and Survey123 in their conservation efforts. Hello and welcome to the Field Notes podcast. Today, we are talking with Andrew Bartshire and Andrea Petrovich, who work with the California Sea Grant Organization to monitor and recover endangered salmon and steelhead fish in California's Russian River. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. I think maybe just to get the conversation started, could you introduce yourselves and just briefly talk about what it is that you do? My name is Andrew Barchar. I work for California Sea Grant. Uh, I am a the GIS coordinator for that program, but I started about 12 years ago as an AmeriCorps member and kind of worked my way up through the ranks. Yeah, and I'm uh, Andrea Petrich, and I work as an um, environmental specialist for Sonoma Water, which is kind of a regional water wholesaler in Sonoma County, California. And I work as a field biologist and also a data scientist for our group. So I guess to set the stage, Josh and I originally came to both of you wanting to learn more about your work with the Russian River Salmon and Steelhead Monitoring Program and your use of GIS within that. So can you talk a little bit about what that program is, um, what issues it addresses, what your roles are within the program and things like that? Yeah, sure. So the Russian River Salmon and Steelhead Monitoring Program is a, a program that was put into place in the early 2000s when uh, coho salmon were kind of on the brink of extirpation within the watershed. Uh, there were only a handful of returning adults uh, coming back to the to the watershed and only to a few streams within the watershed. Uh, agency partners at, at that point were able to, thankfully, were able to recognize that this was happening and uh, intercede in a way that they could, which was to pull some of the juveniles out of the stream system, uh, those last returning juveniles into the system, and get them into a, uh, into a hatchery program up at Warm Springs Hatchery. So it's a conservation uh, hatchery program, uh, what's called the uh, Co-Captive Broodstock Program. It was formed by the Army Corps of Engineers with partnerships with CDFW, uh, NOAA Restoration Center, and, and other partners within the watershed. They were able to, to take some of those juvenile fish, uh, rear them to adulthood, and respond them according to a genetic matrix in partnership with Carlos Garza's lab out of UC Santa Cruz, uh, and, and reintroduce those fish back into the watershed as juveniles. Um, so since 2001, they have been running that uh, co-captive broodstock program out of the Don Clausen hatchery at Lake Sonoma. The Russian River Captive Co-Broodstock Program is uh, our role uh, within that, California Sea Grant's role within that is to monitor those juvenile populations uh, in the stream systems after they've been released. To do that, we follow uh, the life history of salmon and steelhead. So we are monitoring them at uh, the adult stage when they return into the watershed as uh, as adults, uh, which is in the winter time, so November through February timeframe, and then also as uh, out migrating smol uh, smolts in March through uh, June, 
And then we snorkel uh, looking for juveniles in stream systems in uh, the early summer months. And then additionally, in the late summer, we do what's called wetted habitat surveys to look for active, like what the stream system actually looks like. So what the, the surface flow conditions are within the watershed. You mentioned a bit about timing of the year and coordinating your activities around that. But does that also influence where and what areas in the river you choose to work in? Yeah, so in winter time, we are so we are always working within for for our work, we are always working in tributaries to the Russian River. So we work in uh, small stream systems. You know, these are your backyard stream systems. These are small, sometimes, you know, three to six feet wide, right? This isn't a large river system. Because of that, 95% of the Russian River watershed is public is privately owned. So we rely on landowners to to provide access to get into these streams. And so this work couldn't be done without those landowners. These are small stream systems. These are stream systems, like I said, they're in your backyard and, and that's where these fish spawn and rear and live their, their entire freshwater portion of their life of their um, uh, life history. So it's very important to be able to get into these stream systems and see what's going on to see the effectiveness of the captive coho broodstock program. I wonder if we could take it like even one step back about like, what is the risk of not monitoring this species? Or like, what is the risk if we were to lose this population? I frequently call coho uh, the canary in the coal mine. Uh, you know, they have that, that effect. They're this keystone species because they are reliant on... Uh, on living at about a year and a half in a freshwater environment. So in close proximity, right? Sharing resources with humans. Because of this, they're very dependent upon uh, that interaction. The, the the importance of this species is, is that they tell a bigger story about watershed health, you know, in addition to their intrinsic actual value too. I mean, they're very, uh, very important culturally. Uh, they're a, a species that, you know, I think we should care about all animal species. So they obviously have that, uh, that value as well. But like I said, they're very culturally in, uh, significant. They also have a, um, a commercial and, and practical use uh, for, for a fishery in certain places, um, and as well as recreation. So they have a lot of value, but like I said, they are this canary in a coal mine. So uh, co in particular, because of their life history, um, can tell you a lot about what the watershed health is. So that's both upland and in stream habitat. Uh, they rely on cold, uh, clear cold water is one way to describe it. So they need cold temperatures and they need uh, water that's that's clean. So without uh, a lot of heavy metals and, and other uh, pollutants in it. And like I said, they're they're in your backyard. So you know that interface between humans and and that's in in coho and and other uh, Samana species is very important. Additionally, uh, our watershed, the Russian River watershed, which is about forty five minutes north of San Francisco. Um, is kind of the southernmost extent of, of where coho populations are found in the world. And so we are kind of on the front lines of that interface between higher popula human populations and, and Salmonid populations. And additionally, we're kind of on that front line for climate change. And so we are kind of on the front lines of that interface between higher popula human populations and, and Salmonid populations. And additionally, we're kind of on that front line for climate change. It's and its scale, or its scale, excuse me, uh, kind of moving uh, further and further north, limiting their populations uh, in further southern regions. So we are kind of at that interface in the Russian River watershed. So yeah, there's there's a lot working against this species for sure, but they are they are very significant. I guess going into some of the collection work that you mentioned, when you're working in the stream, in the river, what type of information are you hoping to learn? And I guess 
what I'm really asking is what type of data are you trying to collect to learn more about the occurrence of the fish species wherever you're, you're looking? Yeah, as Andrew mentioned, we're monitoring them throughout like their freshwater cycle. So we're mostly we're collecting observational data. So that could be um, staff in the water snorkeling in the streams, counting juvenile fish, and then also observations of adults when they're in their spawning runs, counting fish, counting reds. So a lot of it is just observational, watching the fish where they are. So we're trying to get their distribution and abundance through those types of surveys. Um, and sometimes we actually put hands-on fish. So we collect them in traps when they're migrating downstream. And then we're able to look at their size and their condition, their overall health. We can also put marks on the individuals. So we'll use uh, pit tags, passive integrated transponder tags um, that uniquely identify fish. So then they, we can record their movement um, without having to recapture them. And if we do recapture them and other sampling later on in the year, then we're able to look at growth over time. So that's a lot of what we do. That's most of the data that we're recording. We also do some remote recording. So we might put in um, temperature loggers or other kind of environmental loggers in the streams and leave them out there and then come back and pick them up. Or I mentioned those pit tags. So we'll have, we have a array of antennas in the watershed in these small tributary streams and also in the main stem of the Russian River where we're able to detect their movements remotely that way. Very cool. So there's like a system that you've set up in the tributaries themselves with the pit tags that kind of registers as they're going through. Yeah, wow, that's exactly. really cool. Yeah, so we, we have quite an array and there's other groups working in the area in, in Marin County and, and other places along the coast that are also marking individuals and fish don't necessarily, I mean, they, they typically come back to their natal streams, but there is also straying. So it takes a lot of coordination to get these, you know, we're all working together kind of for the same purpose, but also for different agencies. So we we coordinate quite a bit with other local groups and um, and we're able to share that information. And so that's always really exciting when we we hear about fish kind of popping up in other watersheds and, and we get detections of fish that we didn't put a tag into. And then we kind of have to send out a bunch of emails like, hey, does anybody know who this one is yeah i'll add too I, i've kind of we've been talking mostly about the bird stock program up to this point but um that's not the only monitoring that we do uh, the the type of monitoring that we do is very similar between the two but we also do uh what's called the coastal monitoring plan which is from california department of fish and wildlife uh, it's a it's a plan that's designed to kind of look at status and trends of populations across the entire california coast so we've been implementing that work since uh, 2013. Uh, Sonoma Water has been a, a, the lead on that grant. Um, they've been an amazing partner, uh, really going above and beyond to, to get out there and find out what's going on in the watershed. Um, and so that work is, like I said, doing the same similar work. You know, we're doing the same types of monitoring, all the things that we've talked about, getting out and doing spawner surveys, snorkel surveys, downstream magnet trapping. But it's happening at a uh, at a larger scale, so it's out. It's it's more stream systems across the watershed, and it's also following a, a different kind of methodology that allows the work to be expanded out. So it's randomized how we sample, and that enables us to be able to say things. You know, our watershed, we can report those results about our water shed, but then the state level agencies can look at that data and expand it out for the entire uh, coast of California and be able to say things about the entire California populations, which is very significant. 
Definitely. Yeah. It's cool to hear like kind of like that interconnected way of working organization by organization or agency to agency. I think something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is for like GIS in particular, um, it being a great tool of kind of allowing that connection and cross-sharing of data and knowledge, which is really important when you're tackling state scale or large scale issues like this. So um, it's really cool to hear that. I guess related to that, going into some of the GIS work and um, things that you guys do, can you talk a little bit about um, how field apps are integrated into your workflow and what apps you use? Uh, yeah, we use primarily Survey123 and field maps in our data collection. And it's been really useful um, having those tools and being able to host things online when we are working with other agencies. So we're able to share data that we're collecting about fish distribution and, and what we're seeing seasonally, like in real time by, by leveraging that online environment. Yeah, so mostly our crews have portable devices, you know, from the size of a cell phone to a laptop computer, and they're using Survey123 to record their observations in in the field and then we use field maps as a way to give them information so Andrew mentioned earlier that most everywhere we go is on private property so we have to manage communications with landowners and knowing how to get people in and out and around different access points so we have we have an active map that they can use and help them you know navigate in the field and they need to have something that they can, you know, use offline also because we are in more remote environments in a lot of these streams. And the great thing about field maps is that, you know, there's an integrated survey one, two, three form that we have using um, for the landowner part of it. So if they run into a landowner and have a communication, they're able to log that right in the field so they can look up where they are on the map. They can, oh, hi, you must be, you know, Mr. Smith. And and they introduce themselves and right. So it really helps kind of streamline that communication and maintaining those relationships are really critical to our workflow. So being able to have provide crews with information and like right away in the field and then have them update that and notify us if something has changed with the contact or they just need to make a note um, that's been really helpful. Yeah, I feel like that's something you don't think about a lot with conservation work or you might not if you're just listening in or new to it is like, you know, you can't just like, if you're going out and collecting this information, there's private property and, you know, owners who might wonder why you're snorkeling outside of their or on their land. Right. <laughs> that's a huge part of what we do. Yeah. And actually we, we do have to spend um, considerable amount of, you know, energy on that effort also. And um, yeah, I do think it's one of those things that's not always thought about in the initial planning of some of these like statewide initiatives, you know, so it's important to keep that in mind. And it's, and it's especially important in a watershed, again, where, where the fish are going to be heavily impacted by human use, right? Where human use and, and habitat overlap each other. Those things are kind of always true, right? If there's a lot mm -hmm. of people, that means there's private property. Yeah. And so that that really does make this watershed in particular very unique, as you would compare to someplace like Alaska, where you have abundance of fish populations and and very rural and and you know not a lot of privately owned, let's say, property. You know, here we really are kind of we're we're bound in by multiple factors. You know, the climate change factor, the land use uh, factor, and then also where the where the populations are dwindling. So it's very important to monitor how those populations are doing. How has your use of field apps and the data that you've collected changed or evolved over time? Like, what has it helped? What are some challenges that you've run into? 
um, and maybe how are you kind of evolving how you use the apps to to make those workflows more efficient? Yeah, I mean, like most field biologists, we started using notebooks and and paper data sheets. So we've we've evolved quite a bit since then, and starting to have the need to record location. So people initially just had like a handheld GPS unit and they were making a, a, a point, dropping a point and then relating it to the record with some kind of ID field. Before we um, started working with the Esri apps and Survey123 specifically, we had another like kind of um, Windows-based handheld field computer. Mm -hmm. And anyway, that software wasn't going to be, the hardware and the software wasn't going to be supported anymore. So we needed to find an alternative that kind of already worked within our existing structure. Survey123 was able to meet our needs in terms of having the flexibility of multiple survey types and being able to be used on different types of devices. So we, you know, sometimes we need something more portable, something with a keyboard, because there's a lot more typing. So we have a lot of different needs depending on the type of data people are collecting. And, you know, it was able to like match the, the kind of hierarchical data structure that we had. So we've like parent and child tables mm -hmm. that are related. And so we use a lot of nested repeats in survey one, two, three with some wedge software, we are able to scan in the, the pit tags. So it's like a RFID reader, you know, they get scanned into a text field and we're able to format that. And so that could, so we could kind of integrate it into the structure that we already, that we already had in place. Um, and that was really, really useful. And, and we've expanded, you know, our, use of field maps kind of simultaneously with that. Um, and that's how it's, you know, developed on the data collection end. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that a lot of your work is done in remote environments. Do you deal with any cellular connection issues? And if so, how do you handle that when working with these apps? So yeah, that was kind of a core um, baseline requirement for our, our field work, which is that we work in exclusively offline environments, right? So going into it, we plan to have zero cell service ever. It doesn't mean that all of our stream systems are, are that rural, but um, we need to be planning for that baseline. So that was a huge part of, of kind of picking what software and, and how uh, we are going to use these apps. And frankly, it's been, a, it's been, it was tough at first. Uh, there were, there were some learning curve, there are some issues, but what I've noticed is that that Esri has gotten significantly all the apps, you know, starting with uh, Collector and and kind of then now Field Maps and Survey123 have been progressively getting better and better and better uh, in that offline environment and giving us more and more functionality to the point now where we're very where there's very few limitations uh, of using it in an exclusively offline environment. We we are able to push our data sets up in a, in a situation where they're able to be synced uh, and taken offline. And other than uh, then making sure that our crews are diligent about downloading their their uh, their maps, uh, kind of refreshing their data before they go out in the field, we we have found uh, very few limitations. Andrew, you were talking about kind of how you've structured the database, you know, being able to have nested tables, those parent-child relationships. I wonder if we could go a little bit more into into that. So, what are you considering when, or what are you considering for how to to structure the data that you've collected? Well, luckily, we, uh, our bosses, Greg Horton and Mariska Obedzinski, did a really good job of 
initial database design. And I have to say that without that forethought and that flexibility in how they built our core tables, it would be really hard to add and like expand on the surveys that we've used. So we've had to do very little changes in those core tables because of that. So we're able to kind of adapt what we want the users to see on a form to the existing data structure. Um, so I like the flexibility that Survey123 gives in, in being able to name and map and choice lists and kind of limit. So we're able to capitalize on kind of that existing structure. Having in mind when you set up a database that I that kind of growth mindset that like we we might only work in this watershed right now, but what if we had you know, what if we expanded that? We only do this type of survey now, but we might do something later in the future and just thinking about how you set up those relationships. Um, the biggest hurdle that we needed to, well, I, I think it's the biggest hurdle, but we, we do a lot of quality control checks on our data as a part of our data process. So that was a huge concern when we switched to using um, the Esri platform and, and getting our enterprise system going and having people submitting things through online. How are we going to stop? <laughs> like, we don't want raw data being put into the core data tables, right? So we had a system in place where there was archiving and, and QAQC checks along the way. Um, and uh, yeah, a team of people were able to, to work and find a way to kind of isolate so we're able to move data basically it gets saved to an enterprise server from the when they submit the form and then we can that gets mapped through like a, a sql script call through a stored procedure um, and um, gets mapped to a separate database where they cruise can run qaqc and make edits to their data. And then the project lead would then be responsible for checking that data again and moving it to like our final database. So I think being able to view and isolate and kind of archive your your data along the way is, is very important. Yeah, I think that's something we wanted we wanted to try to highlight too is like the amount of of work that goes into yeah. you know making sure the data is uh, it has integrity after the fact that it's been collected, um, and also being just really intentional with uh, future proofing uh, the data structure. Right, it's awesome that you had bosses with the forethought to create something that could be adaptable as you change technology, um, because once you start getting that data in and having to restructure is a whole whole different beast. So that's great. And I think as, as probably most listeners appreciate too, I mean, it's, it's because our supervisors, you know, had laid out this system, there were demands that they had in order to even contemplate changing our systems, right? We had to make sure that we met these milestones, that mm -hmm. we had these, these kind of iterative uh, yeah. steps along the way, as Andy talked about, because we weren't going to get buy-in if we didn't do that, right? So, you know, as much as coming up with this system, you know, sounds easy now, right? But every step along the way, uh, we were having to kind of proof of concept at first and, and make sure that we had these, these backups, you know, that we could, we could definitively defend where our raw data was and where our QC, Q, uh, QAQC uh, data was, and then where our final data, you know, that the integrity of the final data set. So it's, it's, it's a process. And as most of us know, we have to, we have to sell that process at times. And yeah. 
the the um, reliability of Survey One Two Three has been has been great for us. You know, we have not lost a single piece of data, Andy. I mean, may, maybe like a handful of records in doing this for six or seven years at this point, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah we haven't had any. I mean, once things get submitted, we do. I will say we have had trouble where people lost connection to the service, mm. and then and that can be if you're in a remote environment and you you lose connection to the service, or your field crew forgot to make that connection before they left the office, and they find themselves out in the in the world. But that is very rare, and it's it's we're trying always to troubleshoot between like the the human factor component of it and the technology component of of problems when they arise but um but yeah as far as like once we get something in and onto the onto the server we're we're solid and and towards that reliability too i mean we've designed what we have found again through this iterative process is that we try to optimize esri's products to enable us to get that that reliability so for example, we used to run everything behind our in our own enterprise server. We've since adopted to using ArcGIS Online as our front end for our forms, for example, because there's 100% uptime for ArcGIS Online uh, forms. So the forms are actually based on ArcGIS Online, but then once the data is submitted after the the, the field uh, crew hits go, right, that data comes back into our server, and now we're optimizing to be able to get the high uptime of ArcGIS Online, but also the the kind of data control features that we're looking for using our enterprise and server infrastructure. Um, so it's 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 finding those sweet spots of being able to to use you know the right job for the the right tool for the right job. I guess continuing this talk about your data process, once you've done like your QA and your QC and you've looked through and made sure everything is correct and it's been entered into your database, what do you do with that data? Are there any insights that you're particularly looking for? And then how does that data go into you um, influencing the conservation efforts that the organization has focused on? So, yeah, I mean, we have multiple projects with, with different outcomes, objectives, right? Um, so fundamentally, we're looking at where the populations are, where, where are salmon within the watershed and in what abundance, right? Are they, are they there to start with? You know, there's this presence absence concept, are fish there or not there? And then there's also kind of this abundance uh, question of how many of them are there. Because this watershed is, there's so many different agencies, so many different groups doing amazing work trying to restore these populations, there's there's kind of an endless number of stakeholders, right, in our case. So uh, one of our, our jobs is to, to get that data out in a, in a way that's usable by the different mm -hmm. stakeholders uh, that meets our deliverables for our work and our grants. Um, and, and it's also, uh, again, data integrity is a component, right? We don't want to put out any data that's not correct. Um, and we also do try to limit some of the in-season data that might be potentially uh, sharing information about uh, where fish populations are kind of in season that we sometimes hold back, right? We do hold back a few a few things kind of in the current year. To do that, we do rely heavily on, on dashboards and story maps. Um, so those have been a great feature for us to be able to just take these, these data as they come in off the field and uh, coming out of the field and just be able to, to almost instantaneously, it's not real time, but it's close to real time. I mean, within 24 hours, typically, we're able to get that information back up 
to uh, our dashboards, which our uh, agency partners have access to in many cases. And sometimes we do have public facing as well that, that enables um, decision makers and stakeholders to make informed and, and accurate and fast decisions. Because I think that's one thing within the conservation field that's, that's typically happened, which is there's just, there's a slow lag time, right? Information um, is many is often firewalled kind of behind different groups doing different work, right? And you have to go try to track down that data and that can take weeks and months and years potentially, right? Um, and, and we've dealt with that too, right? I mean, we get um, these different stakeholders that are requesting information from us before we've had these systems in place and we're having to to uh, stop what we're doing and, and respond to that data request, you know, to, to, to generate that data to share with them. Now we don't have to do that. You know, now that data is uh, pushed up to our to our dashboard or to our story map and made available to uh, to partners, like I said, near instantaneous, which again, it's that scale concept, right? I mean, I can't tell you how valuable that is because that's not our job, right? We aren't the ones doing that work. Our job is to, is to provide the information and then the other people are the ones who are actually making the impact, right? So, um, but it, it opens that door up that, that to, to additional people with different groups and in, in, in all, whatever it is that they're working on, they can, they can utilize that information, however, uh, services them. Well, one, cool to hear that you're using dashboards and story maps. I think story maps is such a is a very accessible way to be able to present that information, to be able to tell stories with that data. So taking it above one step of just like providing that raw data, but being able to present it in a way that is usable. Uh, so I know that it's it's kind of your role to provide that data, but have you noticed any meaningful trends or maybe have, have any meaningful trends come from the partners um, that have been using that data um, since kind of this project started up? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a couple of, I'll, I'll touch on two projects specifically, but there are actually many more and probably more that I don't even know about, right? But you know, first and foremost, the NOAA Restoration Center um, was able to, to use uh, some of our long-term data sets. So again, we've been gathering this data since the early 2000s. Um, and so in a specific watershed, the Mill Creek watershed, uh, we were able to look at coho distribution, or excuse me, they were able to look at coho distribution uh, over the last 15, 20 years and be able to say that that fish were utilizing the lower portion of the watershed, but not necessarily the upper portion of the watershed. And when they dug into that, they were able to identify a, an old kind of derelict dam, uh, diversion dam that was that was in place. And by utilizing that data as well as as you know surveying the, the site and and getting um, you know landowner permission and you know kind of using the data to, to formulate a, a coalition to go about finding a way to, to remedy the situation, right? And they they were able to do that. Uh, they were able to to do a restoration project that kind of remove that dam, create a, a fish bypass. And then we were able to, because our monitoring continued afterwards, they were actually able to document the success of that program, right? So it's a perfect example of kind of finding a problem, using the data to find, okay, here is an issue. And then uh, and then using that data to help support and, and energize, uh, you know, the efforts to, to, to remedy it. And then also to document the success of that program. Additionally, there was another watershed, the Dutch Bill watershed, which, uh, had, has a serious problem with uh, low summer flows. So by the end of summer, the, the stream channel is in the lower portion of the watershed is almost completely dry every year. You know, we're talking mile, mile plus of stream channel. So over half of the spawning habitat, for example, and rearing habitat within the watershed was running completely dry. And by providing that data and seeing it year after year, 
you know, a local group was able to uh, to to utilize that to to inform a flow enhancement project. So the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center, as well as Gold Ridge RCD, uh, and some other partners were able to institute a, a, an actual release from uh, a local water district was willing and, and uh, supportive enough to, to, to donate some water to put actually into the stream wow. channel. So they literally were pumping cold water into the stream. And we were able to document that um, it rewet certain portion of the watershed, which led to um, you know, a certain portion of the, the fish populations that are trying to rear in this stream to be able to actually have access to water. Because in our watersheds, low summer flow has been identified as a bottleneck for survival. You know, fish can't survive without water, obviously. Uh, and in the summer months in, in our in our um, climate out in California, the Mediterranean climate, we don't see any rain between, you know, let's say March and, and September. So that that low flow period kind of in, in the September, October timeframe leads to many times uh, pools just running completely dry and fish not having any access to, to, to water to survive. So projects like that, where they're able to take a, uh, acknowledge an issue, okay, there's there's a limited amount of water here and then literally put water into the stream. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a great situation. Yeah, I would just say generally we work with the, the resource agencies who are charged with, you know, conservation and recovery of the species that we're working on so they really do rely on efforts of of groups like ours that are doing the monitoring and that are in the streams to identify locations where their work would be most fruitful right so we can identify areas where adults tend to want to return and then focus restoration or enhancement efforts in those specific locations. I mean, it would be great if like time and money and resources were limitless, but they're not. And so they really do need to make decisions about where is the best place to focus our energy? Where should we be doing that? And so I think that's just kind of generally where the monitoring work is sees kind of immediate use. Yeah, col collaboration, I think is a, is a great word to describe it because like Andy said, you know, our role is just, we're, we're just providing the data, right? We're monitoring what's happening out there. And, and it's, and that enables us to be able to do that work, right? We're not regulatory. We're not, um, we're not asking anything of the landowner other than to come out and just, just count what's going on out there. Right. Um, but then you have all these other amazing stakeholders that like the uh, resource conservation districts, the RCDs, there's Goldridge RCD, there's Snowmar RCD. So they're they're working at that interface between kind of landowners and agencies, right? They're that go-between, the, the ombudsman, right? They're the ones who kind of connect those dots. And then you have the agencies themselves um, that are that are bringing money and funding and expertise and 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 you know the permitting and all the things that that actually need to happen all the check boxes you need to check before actual work and, and action happens and all of those different agencies have to work together and and we kind of are in a way at the center of that even though we not we are not involved in any of that work right we're not doing any of that work but we are just providing the information um, that enables them so again it's it's about getting that information out quick accurately and, and making it accessible to, to all the different groups, because again, it scales, right? I mean, there's there's different groups wanting to do different work and if they can secure funding and permitting to do that work, then you know the more the merrier in a lot of ways. I guess thinking about the future, do you see yourselves changing or evolving in the way you use GIS in your monitoring work or maybe using field apps in different ways? 
For our end at Sonoma Water, I would like to see us just kind of use the tools more more broadly in, in other areas of our monitoring work that we do and, and our activities in the watershed. And then also just to, you know, increase kind of that community aspect of it or that um, getting the data out there. So we do, like Andrew mentioned, have dashboards and story maps and just kind of expanding on that and being able to provide information um, you know, just through a URL, like internally with our staff, at, you know, here, so they have up-to-date information in a very digestible form, um, and then also externally with our other partners. Well, I think that about wraps up uh, the amount of time that we have today, but thank you again both so much for joining us. One final question for you is, if folks want to learn more about the work that, that we were just talking about, where, th where should they go? So the easiest way to find us is the old Google search, which would be uh, Russian River Coho. If you put in those keywords, hard hard to miss us. Uh, additionally, our our ArcGIS Online um, uh, page is RussianRiverCoho.maps.arcgis.com, and there there you can actually see our public facing dashboards. Um, just by signing on there, you can actually just see our public. You don't need the credentials or anything. Um, and so you can kind of interact with with some of our data and see how we are sharing that out. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to link those links into in our episode description um, so viewers or listeners can easily find them. Um, but with that, thank you so much again for joining us and being willing to talk with us today. It was our, our pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Field Notes podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, Subscribe to Field Notes on your favorite podcast app and join us on the next episode.